Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis, and we'll be actually in chapter 33. Admittedly, after much struggle and prayer on deciding whether to do a special topical sermon to address the current crisis or to stay in our regular exposition of Genesis, I've opted for the latter. Two reasons here. First, our church strongly believes in the sufficiency of all of God's Word. And staying true to our original plan will give us the opportunity to see this on display. With so many of our regular rhythms disrupted already, I also thought it would be helpful for us to maintain as much normalcy as possible in this unique time. So today we're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago by turning to Genesis thirty-three, eighteen. Genesis thirty-three, eighteen. And we'll be looking from there all the way to chapter 35, verse 5. And due to the length of the text and the nature of its contents, I'm actually going to read the text as we make our way through the message. Now, due to the domination of news coverage and life challenges related to COVID-19, few of us even recognize that this past Tuesday was none other than St. Patrick's Day. You know it, right? Uh, the one where you get pinched if you don't wear green. This bizarre holiday has its roots in a bizarre belief first popularized by the Roman Catholic Church, namely, a belief in patron saints. According to this superstition, people have access to, sp- to special prayer helpers in heaven. And this sham is supposed to work as follows. First, people need all the help they can get in talking to God. The second... Over the centuries, the Roman Catholic Church has recruited or canonized patron saints to act as sort of a receptionist to sort through your request and provide an additional boost in getting them to God. And third, the key to this practice is remembering the right one for the right situations. So St. Patrick's Day celebrates the life of none other than St. Patrick, the historical figure who supposedly brought Christianity to Ireland supposedly explained the Trinity with a shamrock, and supposedly banished the island of all snakes. Thus, the Irish find in him a man with whom they can identify. Uh, They look to him and can get extra help in heaven, supposedly. You would say, Justin, I'm not Irish. No problem. There's a myriad of saints for whatever situation you tend to face. Uh, There's even a saint of fireworks, St. Barbara, a saint of swimming, St. Adjutor. Or even St. Columbanus. He's the saint of motorcycles. Now, personally, I'm not Irish. I don't mess around with fireworks that often. I can swim, and I don't own a motorcycle. If patron saints actually existed, I don't think I'd be spending much time calling out to Patrick, Barbara, Adjutor, or Columbanus. But in light of the season of life that many find themselves in these days... I think I'd invent a patron saint of trouble. As I listen to the news and talk to people around me, I find that they could use a a patron saint of the world being turned upside down or a patron saint of people acting like rats on a sinking ship or a patron saint of global pandemics or of looming financial crisis or frustration from self-isolation. What about you? Do you ever face scenarios like that in which you want a little bit of extra help? 
in the last week, does it feel like the world is turning upside down? Do you feel those acute moments of panic or maybe it's a long, gnawing anxiety? Do you or those you know and love fear all is lost or at least soon will be? It seems that trouble always abounds. Maybe the pile of trouble from which you want escape concerns personal disorder or, or, or ending a, of a family relationship or a pivotal yet unclear life decision, or maybe it's a political concern. Maybe your struggle or your trouble is a life of sinful decisions coming back to bite you. Maybe it's an extended defeat regarding the same sin over and over. That's the nature of trouble. It could be a result of your own sin or foolishness. It could be the byproduct of someone or something else. The common element, however, is that we all know what it's like to be neck deep in trouble. But the question then is, how do we get out? And so we look back to our Bibles. Over the last few weeks, we've been reviewing a story, the main human character of which is none other than Jacob. Uh, Though I don't have the inclination or authority To me, Jacob would be a fantastic candidate for the patron saint of trouble. His whole life is characterized by trouble, and somehow God always pulls him out. I mean, just think about what he has endured up to this point because of his own manipulation. His brother Esau wanted to murder him, forcing him to go on the run, and then he ends up under his manipulative uncle Laban, in even more trouble. And then as he leaves his uncle Laban, Laban brings a militia behind him, bringing Jacob more trouble. And then after he escapes Laban, he then has to face his brother Esau again, and he faces more trouble. Sometimes Jacob's trouble comes more from the environment and the people around him as is the case here in the text we're going to look at today. In fact, Jacob and his sons are going to find themselves in one of the most threatening predicaments of their existence. Despite Jacob's good intentions to worship God with his life, bad things happen. When he thought things were finally going well, Jacob's world will once more turn upside down and inside out. And the situation in this text is bleak. The trouble is deep. And this story can be a huge help for all who feel similar desperation. How does it help? This text provides a graphic portrait of how God protects his people when they're in a pile of trouble. Now, as we study through God's word today, I want to help you see this clearly, but uh, for this to happen, you're going to need to do two things. Two things as we work our way through the text. The, The first is you need to feel the horror of Jacob's problem. You're going to see that primarily in chapter 34. But when we get to chapter 35, you're going to have to do a second thing. And I'm going to want you to find the hope of Jacob's protection. We need to start with the first. 
We, we need to feel the horror of what's going on here. And it's at this point that we just want to quickly walk through this chapter. It starts off rather hopeful. You, you look at chapter 33, verses 18 to 20, and we start there because that's where the scene starts. Typically, a scene in the Bible will begin at the beginning of a new location. Well, in verse 17, Jacob has left Succoth, and now he's made his way to this city named Shechem. And, and it, things start off kind of bright. Uh, look at verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. On his way from Paddan Aram, he, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. I mean, this is a great start. Jacob is making his way gradually back to the, the land of promise. He's actually in the borders of Canaan by this point, and he is close to home, but he's not there yet. And for some reason unknown to us, he decides to settle in this land of Shechem. And it doesn't seem that he's forgotten God by any means. After all, he builds a, an altar. He dedicates the place to God. He calls it God, the God of Israel. Remember, his name has just formally been changed from Jacob to Israel, which means God fights. Uh, he's even acknowledging here that God's going to have to fight his battles. But between uh, verse 20 of chapter 33 and chapter 34, verse 1, it seems some time passes. Uh, what were tender children now become teenagers and young adults. The context will make this clear. And what starts off as a hopeful circumstance will now digress into none other than what I would call a hellish situation. I mean, starting at verse 1 all the way down to verse 29, things will get worse and worse and worse. And it begins of all things, with an account of rape. Look at the first few verses. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this girl for my wife. Now, friends, this is a horrific circumstance. Uh, some have tried to fault Dinah for uh, going to go visit the young women of the land. And yet there is no clarity here that this is what has to happen. There's no real like shot that, that this was a horrible thing. She just happens to go out. The text doesn't condemn her for it. And it was in this moment that this young man targets her and he violates her. And then what makes it even worse, and, and it's easy to see this as you continue to read the text, is that he, he keeps her captive. I mean, it says that like he keeps trying to speak to her in a tender way. Like, he keeps her there. This is a horrible situation. She has been violated. She has been kidnapped. I mean, a horrific thing has come upon Jacob's family. And then something even more horrific seems to happen. As she is in her captivity, a, a negotiation is actually going to take place. 
I mean, in modern terms, what we have here is a kidnapping and a ransom discussion. But it proceeds in true ancient Near Eastern style with a lot of politeness. Notice this negotiation. Beginning at verse 5, uh, or verse 4, excuse me, Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. So as is done in the ancient Near East, he sends his father to negotiate marriage. He actually wants to be with this girl forever. And then it says in verse 5, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant, very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Here we see the beginning of the negotiations. It seems that that Hamor goes and and tries to make things right by saying, hey, well, let's just let these kids get married. Let's just let bygones be bygones. And and something is interesting here in the text. Uh, Jacob isn't portrayed as the one that's outraged. It just says that Jacob is quiet. He keeps things to himself. Now, there's no explanation as to why, but you would think that as a father he would be a little more riled. But for whatever he lacked in intensity... His sons will actually make up for. They, they are boiling. I mean, the text is clear that they're outraged. They're very angry. And it even, they even say that this is an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. This was something that no one in their people group would ever consider. And indeed, this was a heinous deed. But they don't betray their feelings. Hamor will continue with trying to negotiate this deal. Look at verse 8. Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. And now he expands it. Notice, make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now, do you notice Shechem's offer here? I mean, like, he is desperate, and he gives away his hand here. He says, if they'll let him marry the young woman, like, he'll give him whatever. But again, friends, I I want you to get what's going on this is heinous. I mean, literally, this is a matter of sex trafficking. I mean, the fact that, that he can continue to have this dialogue is absolutely atrocious. And, and what I want you not to lose sight of is this is a hot water situation. Their daughter is threatened. I mean, they're the, the smaller group. You have an established city that's going out to negotiate. They have very little leverage. They're the outsiders. And so the sons have to be wise here if they're going to recover Dinah safely. And so, it's interesting that they, the sons, Jacob's sons, begin to speak up. Uh, this, their boiling blood is pushing up on the top of the pot, if you will. But they keep it under wraps just long enough to cook up a wicked plan of vengeance. Uh, they answer deceitfully, the text says. Notice how they continue, verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, the, the 
interestingly, the text does make a moral judgment here, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, and here, here's their counteroffer, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now, you notice that Jacob's sons, they've, they've got it honest. They're, they're master negotiators and deceivers themselves. They, they mention all the benefits of this deal. We'll be one people group with you. And they even provide an ultimatum for immediate acceptance. They say, this is a limited time offer. Like, we're going to take this thing off the table. And the guys fall for it. Now, if you've never read this story before, you don't know what's going to happen next. But you do want to keep in mind that they're trying to get these men to agree to undergo the painful rite of circumcision so that they can be one people. But that's not really what they want. Hamor and Shechem, they're going to fall for this offer. Not only will they fall for it, but they're going to get the entire city to fall for it. And, and, and notice what happens here, verse 18. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. And this is important. This isn't just some secondary guy in the village. You've basically got the mayor of the city and his son, a very well-respected group, if you will. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city, which is like town hall. This is the main place where people would meet and do business. And he spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And here's, here's how they sell the deal. Will not their livestock, their property, and their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of this, his city. It seems like things are, are going well. It, it seems like maybe they're going to be able to patch up this little misunderstanding and Sorry for Dinah, but there would be peace overall. They, they could avoid a, a war in their early existence as a tribe in this new land. And, and by this point, though, you should be wondering, what's the world? Are Jacob and his kin that heartless that they would literally sell their daughter as a sex slave? Are the Shechemites really going to prosper financially from this case of rape? I mean, this is a horrible situation. I mean, can it get any worse? Can the moral atrocities continue? The pile of trouble that at this point was probably knee-deep and then waist-deep now becomes neck-deep as this slide into a hellish situation continues. It actually gets worse. Notice what happens in verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore from that procedure, 
two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Then the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Friends, it's worse. I mean, it's at its worst. They grab their swords, they approach the city at a time when everybody thinks it's safe, and instead of just trying to avenge Shechem, they kill every single man in the city. And then they pillage it. They don't just recover Dinah, but then they go and not only steal all the property, but they steal all the women and all the children. I mean, friends, this is absolutely disgraceful. I mean, you think the current circumstance is bad. This is is bad. It doesn't get worse than this. I mean, Jacob has not faced this type of trouble yet. He's had Laban and a few of his cronies try to take him out. He's had Esau and a few hundred of his buddies try to take them out, potentially. But now, he is inviting the ire of the entire nation of Canaan. Friends, do you remember what it was like in 9-11 when several thousand Americans were killed by foreigners? That hatred, that vitriol, that somebody would come in and kill so many of our own? I mean, this is a 9-11 moment for the land of Canaan. I mean, these guys have come in and under a shroud of dishonesty have slaughtered an entire village and kidnapped the women and children. I mean, these are the sons of Jacob. Things are bad. And if you haven't figured it out yet, Jacob and his kin are in deep trouble. The happy start in Shechem has given way to a hellish situation which gives itself off to a horrible stench. Look at verses 30 and 31. Here's the commentary on everything that's happened at this point. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Now, he's speaking in first person here because, like, this is his family. Like, he's the patriarch. He represents them. He's not just concerned for himself. He's concerned for his household. And what makes it worse is they justify it. (laughs) They're not remorseful at all. They say in verse 31, well, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? I mean, friends, the, the, the language here is so graphic. It says, made me to stink among the Canaanites. Now, let me just ask you, the last time that you had a horrible stench in your house, what did you do with it? You identified it, and you removed it with prejudice. I mean, Jacob 
understands that this stinks to the entire nation and that they will be inviting the elimination of the surrounding people groups. Friends, uh, Canaan was no cultural melting pot. It was basically two families, the people who descended from Canaan and the people who descended from Perez. They are angry. They will be angry. They will avenge the murders of their people. And so they're in this desperate situation. Jacob now is in a mess, and as a mess, it is messy as most messes are. Once again, the people of God find themselves in incalculable danger, partly on account of their own actions and partly on account of the actions of another. And when you read the text carefully, you're going to notice two things through this whole chapter, through this whole digression. Did you pick up on them? The first, divine absence. Nowhere in all of chapter 34 does God's name appear. It's as if he's disappeared. That's how things got so bad. It seems he's nowhere present. But we not only have divine absence here, but a careful reading also will show moral ambiguity. Moral ambiguity. It's amazing how the narrator, uh, Moses here, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, carefully develops each character in this chapter. I mean, nobody in this chapter is portrayed as totally innocent. Would a Jewish reader have thought of Dinah going to visit the pagan women as a godly thing? I doubt it. Or, let me ask this, why does the narrator give so much attention to Shechem's love and tenderness toward Dinah? Do you notice that? It keeps saying over and over again, well, at least he loved her, at least he wanted to be with her, he he was going to take care of her. Or, Or here's another moral dilemma. Why is Jacob so shockingly silent when he first learns of Dinah's rape? Why doesn't he get angry? Why doesn't he do anything? Why is he so passive until the very end of the text? Or what about Hamor? Uh, He tries to offer this deal that's beneficial for both people groups. He just seems to be a well-meaning dad in some ways, even though some horrible things are going on in the background. Or think of the men of the city. Do they not deal in good faith toward the sons of Jacob? Do they know everything that's going on? No one mentions the captivity of Dinah to them. Or did you notice also how the narrator keeps reminding us that Simeon and Levi committed these atrocious acts? Why? He keeps telling us why. To defend their sister's honor. You think about the text long enough and you realize that the genesis of this pile of trouble is complex. But what's clear, however, is that the people of God are in a horrific predicament. So, Do you feel it? Do you feel the horror of Jacob's problem? On account of their own sinful actions and the sinful actions of others, Jacob and his family are embroiled neck deep in trouble. And can you sympathize? I mean, I want you to think a moment about your own neck deep problems for a moment. Are they all your fault? Maybe. Maybe not. Are they all somebody else's fault? Maybe. Maybe not. It's complex, isn't it? But the problems, regardless of their origin, are real. 
and they are threatening, and they are scary, and they seem absolutely impossible to escape. And so the question is, what do you do? So now that you've identified the horror of Jacob's problem, I need you to do that second thing. We're going to keep reading. But as we do, you need to find the hope of Jacob's protection. Find the hope of Jacob's protection. How will he escape this problem? How can we get out of our own? The story continues into the next chapter. Now, that may surprise you because you're so used to being able to read in your Bible a chapter heading and think, oh, this is where the story starts and stops. But once again, church family, I want to clarify for you that the chapter divisions in your Bible are not inspired. This is going to be extremely important to understanding the story. Now, these chapter divisions, those numbers that you see in your Bible, they're mere resources that can frankly be distracting. Uh, What chapter and verses do for us, helping us find certain things, they do to us. They can make us read the text differently. And so when you're reading a biblical narrative, this is just good hermeneutical Bible interpretation advice for anybody, you have to determine where a story starts and where it stops. And you can't do that by chapter divisions. You have to do that by the logical markers of plot, resolution, location, and characters. Uh, That's the best three things I could tell you to look for. How do you know where a story starts and and ends? Well, where does the plot get resolved? Does the location change? And are the same characters there? It's kind of like determining when there's a scene break in a play. Now, this is vital to understanding the significance of the passage. Forgive me for geeking out on this a moment. But what I, I want you to note here is that if you stop at the end of chapter 34, how has the plot been resolved? Jacob and his family are still neck deep in trouble. If you end the story at chapter, thor, uh, chapter 34, I mean, it's kind of like not watching the second part of the old Batman. I mean, no one wants to just watch the first episode and see Batman and Robin frying to death on the roof under Catwoman's magnifying glass. And no, nobody like, ends it and says, oh, well, that's satisfying. We're good. I don't need to watch the second one. Instead, they know that they're to tune in to the next day at the same bat time and the same bat channel to, to see what happens. Like, here, we need to keep tuning in. We need to find out, like, what is actually happening. But not only has the plot not been resolved yet, but the beginning of chapter 35 includes the same characters, and it takes place in the same location. There's been no scene switch. It's the same scene. They're still in Shechem. I'll just throw one more out there to you. Furthermore, If you stop the story at the end of chapter 34, please tell me, friends, what would be the great life lesson? Boundaries in parenting? Keeping our anger under control? Being honest in negotiations? I mean, friends, I have no clue what I would do if the story ended at chapter 34. The chapter by itself doesn't make a theological point. God's name isn't even mentioned. But here's what it does. It lays the foundation to make a point. The real point of this incident at Shechem begins right when things are at their very worst. When Jacob is neck deep in trouble, God invites. He invites. Look at verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. 
make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. The God who had not actively appeared through the whole horrific scene speaks up when Jacob most desperately needs him. The Hebrew conjunction, interestingly, at the beginning of verse 1, can easily be translated, and in some translations is translated, then God said to Jacob. It it is pointing us back. It is sequential action. Jacob, in one of the worst moments, receives a special invitation from God. There is an invitation from God. God is telling him, come back to the place where I first showed you my special protective presence. Specifically, this invitation demands Jacob's leaving this horrible place and going back to the place where God first made himself known to him. Uh, You'll remember that from chapter 28. The place where God first promised his special presence and protection when Jacob absolutely didn't deserve it. Uh, Jacob and his family, they needed to remember and commemorate the God who provided protection for them when they were threatened on account of their own sinful actions. That's what Jacob learned at Bethel. And that is what his children would need to learn as well. Friends, how do you think this simple invitation from God would have resonated with the generations of Israelites who would regularly find themselves in neck-deep trouble? Sometimes on account of their own sin, sometimes on account of the sin of others, they would remember that God had already invited them to rely on his grace even when they didn't deserve it. They would need to return to the place of his manifest presence, whether that be the tabernacle or the temple. They knew that trouble would only be solved via the special presence of God. This is true of each and every one of you today. It may be bad. It may be really bad. But he invites you who are weak and weary to return to him. His revelation and his word calls you to remember the source of your help. You remember the old hymn? Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast in our eternal home. Or even the second verse. Under the shadow of your throne, your saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is your arm alone, and our defense is sure. Yeah. The trouble may be attributable to your own sin, or maybe it's just the inherited sin of Adam, evidenced through the catastrophes and curses of this fallen world. But safety may be found in returning to the Father through the person and work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The altar that would be erected by Jacob has now been replaced by the altar of our Lord Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself to satisfy God's just condemnation of sin who rose again to give life eternal to all who are trusting in him. Jesus Christ was, is, and forever will be the ultimate revelation of the help of God for struggling sinners just like us. And so God invites you, dear saint, to remember that your greatest problem, sin itself, has been remedied in Christ, and you are safe. COVID-19 may infect your lungs. The stock market may damage your bank account. The panic may cost you your job, but you are safe in the presence of God. So, 
What rescued Jacob and his family? It was an invitation from God. His initiating, preemptive, sovereign, gracious invitation. But the resolution to Jacob's trouble doesn't stop with an invitation from God. It continues with preparation for God. Upon receiving God's gracious invitation, Jacob realizes that he and his family must prepare to meet him. And so when Jacob is in neck-deep trouble, he also prepares. Look at verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. In response to the gracious invitation of God, Jacob leads his household to repent of the sin that had inevitably stained them from their pagan past and present. And they prepared to enter into the place of God's special presence. Inherently knowing God to be holy, Jacob instructs his entire household to divest themselves of any and all idols or counterfeit gods that they had picked up from their travels. And by the way that they had behaved, clearly they had been influenced by some form of paganism. They needed to even change their clothes and clean themselves to acknowledge the dirtiness of their past. We all do this, right? Just the common social grace of showering before we visit someone else's home. I mean, inherently, they know that if they're going to be in the manifest presence of God, they must prepare themselves. And he says that they should do this because they're going back to the place where God specially revealed his protective presence. They're going to enjoy the presence of God who answers me in the day of my distress, is what Jacob says. The God who has been with me wherever I have gone. What I want you to note here is that Jacob isn't motivating them by guilt, but by grace. When I clean up to enjoy the company of a stranger versus cleaning up to enjoy the company of a beloved grandparent. I mean, you can see it in my kids' eyes. They want to know who they're preparing to go visit. Jacob is excited about the one that he is going to see. And they respond impeccably. Jacob's sons and his whole family, his whole household, they divest themselves of all their idols, their earrings that were associated with the pagan worship. And Jacob digs a hole under an oak tree and he buries them. And this itself is a semi-formal act of forsaking their counterfeit gods. And here we have preparation for God. They, they cast off the corrupt idols and the ideals of their past. Again, how, how would Jewish readers have understood this? They, they would have read this account and been reminded of their own inherent impurity and regular need for approaching God in purity. We read something like the book of Leviticus, for example, and we think, man, what a pain. I can't believe that they had to do all those sacrifices and follow all those rules. And yet we too often forget that the only alternative available to them at this time was no approach to God at all. Oh, look, friends, we know this. And they knew it. Purity mattered in one's approach to God because God himself is pure. God himself is holy. Three of our beloved children, when they were first born, spent time in the NICU. 
Now, if you've ever had this experience, it's heart-wrenching. Enjoying the presence of your beloved baby has to take place in a pure and a safe environment. You can't just merely waltz over to the crib whenever you please. You, you have to get dressed, you drive to the hospital, you check in, you go to the NICU ward, you check in again. Then you have to go to this special scrub station, and using uncomfortable brushes, you wash your hands and your arms until you remove the top layer of skin. And then you wait for a special escort who then takes you to the crib side of your beloved. It's an arduous process because the NICU is a place of purity. But just because it's arduous doesn't mean that it's not ultimately enjoyable. I can't recall ever saying that we had to go see our baby, but it was always we get to see our baby. Just purity was the non-negotiable reality. Friends, the Old Testament saint did not have to have to enjoy God's presence. They got to enjoy God's presence. Knowing that purity is paramount with God, his gracious invitation to enjoy his presence always involved an implicit call to purity. In other words, to enjoy his embrace, we must let go of our idolatrous lovers. To turn to God is to turn from sin. And this is no different for us, friends. The, The only thing that changes is the method by which we are pure. Jesus satisfied all the ritual and ceremonial aspects of our approach to God. And as our high priest, he has made a way for us to access him directly. But nevertheless, we still access God with a heart of repentance from sin. We still come to him today with an awareness of and an appreciation for his holiness. Now, let me be theologically clear for a moment. This happens initially at conversion. When you were saved... There was an initial act of dying to self and rising again to new life in him. There was a turning from sin and a turning to God, a reorientation of the heart. And just as they changed their clothes and publicly retired their idols, guess what? So we who come to God through Jesus are publicly immersed in water and brought up again. Look at Romans 6 for that. You know what that does? That marks our public allegiance to God. But let me be clear, at the same time, Though our conversion and subsequent baptism is a one-time event, we are always living in light of that. Idols inevitably creep in, and this corrupt world contaminates us. And so in the moments of trouble, friends, we do well to consider if there are any counterfeit gods or contaminating sins that we need to forsake. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that we always need to repent in time of crisis. But a time of crisis is a great time for us to consider whether or not we need to repent. Jesus did the same thing for his followers. They asked him, uh, what about this tower that fell? And what about the atrocities that were committed against Herod? And all he would say back to those things is, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Friends, may I just ask you, in this time of crisis, I'm not saying it's happening as a result of your personal sin. But as you consider a return to God, an enjoyment of his presence, is there any area in which you need to clean up? Are there any idols, any counterfeit gods to cast off? Maybe it's a contaminating relationship, a a, a defiling hobby or habit, or maybe it's an idolatrous hope. Amid all your trouble, God is inviting you once more into his protective presence. 
friend, forsake your sin, not out of guilt, but out of grace. So how does Jacob get out of trouble? Well, there's the invitation from God, which leads to the preparation for God, which results in intervention of God. When Jacob is neck deep in trouble, God intervenes. Look at our last verse, verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now, friends, this is resolution to the conflict. Here is a happy ending. They make the journey to Bethel, and before they even get there, God intervenes by sending a divine terror upon the hostile cities around them, and none of these cities pursue the sons of Jacob. What rich and resplendent grace. I mean, this group of deceivers, thieves, murderers, and idolaters, they enjoy special protection from God amid all their trouble. Indeed, it was bad. It was really bad. But God intervened. Beloved, this is the very reason why I say that Jacob could be the patron saint of neck deep trouble. It seems that the people of God kind of always remembered him this way. Have you ever noticed how the Psalms associate God's help in troubled times with Jacob? It's something that I've noticed for years, but only recently I've put together. You read Psalm 20 verse 1 and it says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Or even in our scripture reading today, we read about these horrible situations and two different times in that text it says, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Or you flip over to Psalm 146 and you see again, it's a devastating political situation. And this is what he says in verse 5, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Do you see it? Jacob is the guy whose life and story you look to in times of trouble. But when you look carefully, what you realize is that Jacob is of no help to you, friends. There's no need for you today to pray to Jacob. (laughs) The patron saint thing is a phony. What you need to remember is the God of Jacob. He is our help. And friends when the world turns upside down, when the trouble is neck deep. In fact, when things are kind of like they are right now, you need not recall some special patron saint. You can go straight to the source. You don't need Jacob. You don't need St. Columbanus, St. Adjutor, St. Barbara, St. Patrick. You only need your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him now. Father in heaven, we are dependent upon your special intervention and grace. And we trust that you will take these words to turn our allegiance to you. Deliver us. Purify us. In Jesus' name, amen.